welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. So I don't know about you, but I'm exhausted. And the weird thing is that it isn't even the fact that over the past week I've packed my entire life into a truck, driven it 500 miles only to take it all out of the truck again and like scatter it randomly throughout a house that although I technically own it, it feels like somebody else's. It's not even the fact that between my four-year-old and my dog, I routinely get woken up in the middle of the night and then you can't get back to sleep and then you're sitting there staring at the ceiling until about 15 minutes before the four-year-old wakes back up again and wants to go play. Really, these days, all of the regular routine things of life that, you know, a year and a half ago might have been the reason for us being exhausted. Really an afterthought compared to, well, you know, everything else. This past Tuesday, we celebrated the reopening of California, our chance to come back out of hiding to Back to normality after a year and a half of pandemia that killed millions of people around the world, brought the routines of our life to an abrupt and sudden halt. The last 18 months have completely transformed our economy, our families, our neighborhood, our travel. It closed Disneyland for Do you have any idea how hard it is to close Disneyland? But it's been closed for a year and a half, and with it, all happiness on the planet. (laughs) Things we've gone through over the past 18 months, no one could have imagined, no one could have predicted. I mean, yeah, there are a bunch of people that now are saying, oh, we saw it coming, but seriously, no one could have predicted the things that we as a community, as a state, as a country, as a human race have experienced and have gone through. I mean, parents yelling at their kids to, you know, go back to staring at a computer all day. No, you can't play outside. Get back in your room. Look at that computer some more. What are you thinking? No one could have ever imagined that we would have spent a year and a half covering half of our face wherever we went, which is great for those of us who were tired of the, you know, societal pressure to smile all the time. I mean, whew, what a relief that, and then the N95, you get an N, brushing your teeth, you know, like you wear an N95, no one can tell you haven't brushed your teeth in a week, that stuff doesn't get out. It's the weirdest thing now, I don't know if you've had this experience, you know, seeing people without masks on, you know, like when you see somebody, like somebody that normally wears glasses and then you see them without their glasses on and they kind of look like themselves, but it looks a little weird. Like everybody looks that way to me now. Like I haven't seen lips in a year and a half. And so it's just kind of, wow, I didn't know that was under there. (laughs) We all knew there were racial tensions in our country, but no one could have predicted the explosion across our country, across the world. Really, I mean, people are walking up and punching elderly women in the face simply because of their ethnic origin. And then there was the fact that the entire western side of our country was on fire last year. 
not to mention the ongoing political division we're experiencing, not just in Washington, of course, but in our neighborhoods, our churches, our homes. The last year and a half, all the things that we would have normally relied on for consistency, stability, they're gone. I mean, thank goodness the Kings missed the playoffs. At least there's one thing in the world that remains constant year after. Could you imagine if they'd actually made it? It's like like the, the world would have cracked in half with the possibility of it all. There's just no getting around it. We are living in unprecedented times. Even now, as the dust settles, we really have no idea what kind of world we are going to find, what the new normal is going to be. Which, if we're paying attention to ourselves, to our own soul, you have to admit, it's unnerving. It's really disruptive. It's really unsettling. It's really tempting to just want to go back to normal. Back to the way it used to be. Like, you know, today is really unsettling. Today, the things that used to make me feel safe and secure and significant aren't there anymore. And so I feel unsafe and insecure and insignificant. And we figure that the solution is somehow to get back to yesterday. There's like this desperation. We've got to get back to the way it was. It's a natural reaction, really. I mean, one that people have, you know, gone to for centuries. It's the reaction of the Israelites in Exodus 14 as they faced the threat of the Egyptian army. Their first instinct, take me back to Egypt. The good old days of slavery and oppression. I want to go there. It was really the whole thing behind the Pharisees' obsession with the law. They were facing invasion of other cultures and traditions into their society. They're feeling like their values aren't being recognized. The traditions are fading away. So they react by making sure that they were, they, they were not going to change. They were going to stay the same. Same with the Judaizers that we read about in Galatians. The guys followed Paul around uh, as, as telling people that were converting to Christianity that they needed to return to observing the law. The unprecedented grace and openness of the gospel it was, just, it was just too unsettling. Let's get back to yesterday with the nice, clear, boxy boundaries of the law. I feel safe. For us church people, it's still one of our favorite ways to address this sense of insecurity in unprecedented times. We see trouble in the world, conflict, brokenness, stagnation in the church, and our immediate response is, is to say, we've abandoned the traditions of the past. We have to go back to the way it was, what we were doing before. Bring back hymns, refocus on small groups, get back to the Bible. Bring back new community. That's what we need. 
And it's not just religious people that do that. I mean, people respond this way in all different arenas of life, whether it's in the South's obsession with the antebellum period, the rise of nationalist movements are all around the world, or even in the endless debates between, you know, what decade had the actual real rock music? The answer is... See, that's what I think, but everybody argues with me on that one. When we hit unprecedented circumstances, there is this instinctive desire to want to get back to the way it was. Because you see, the past, it's static. It doesn't move. It doesn't change. Because of that, it's, it's manageable. Right? You can control the past. It stands still and politely allows you to trim and, and prim and forget or ignore the parts that aren't so pretty, the part that you don't like. We can mold it and shape it to our opinion, to our perspective of what yesterday was like. The past won't argue. Because the past is dead. It cannot be revived. We know too much. The past cannot hold who we've become. What we've learned, as Sarah Groves once sung. Now, not everybody escapes to the past. Some prefer to get back to the future. When they hit unsettling, unprecedented times, the instinct now is to want to fast forward to the future, right? It's like we know what we want the future to be like. So let's just, let's just make that happen now. This was the zealots' approach in Jesus' day. These guys were radical uh, revolutionaries that they're totally convinced of God's good plans for Israel. So they figured, well, let's just make them happen now. Grab your sword. They wanted a military Jesus that would bring the kingdom by force. This feeling really is the impetus behind much of the use of force today. We're sick and tired of waiting for things to change, waiting for people to change. We're going to force them to change. It also motivates a lot of the escapism into virtual reality where things are exactly the way we want them to be. Pre-programmed to be exactly the way we want them to be. The only problem is they just don't exist which is, I think, our attraction to the future. The fact that it doesn't exist, it means that you can make it whatever you want. The grass is greener or yellower or pink even in the future. Because nobody knows. It's really anybody's guess and any guess is good guess. In church culture, this... uh, This reaction usually shows up as a fascination with eschatology, a fascination with end times. In the face of unprecedented circumstances, you'll hear people start predicting the end of the world. Which, you know, does make sense to some degree. Many of the prophetic references to the end of the world and Jesus' return, they do mention very turbulent times of tragedy and trouble and war and pandemics. But all of those passages, they're always accompanied by a warning against overemphasizing and predicting and focusing on the end. Matthew 24, 36 reminds us that about that day, that hour, 
Nobody knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And yet we don't listen. I mean, we're so obsessed with avoiding the uncertainty of unprecedented times that we wish, we hope, we announce the end is near. We publish dates, we issue unsubstantiated and unprovable decrees, warnings that really only serve to discredit the gospel when they inevitably prove to be false. And they distract us from the very real needs of the present moment. The call of the gospel has always been to tend to the present moment. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, Psalm 95 says. Encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, Hebrews chapter 3 says. As long as it is day, Jesus reminds us, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. In John chapter 9. Which it sounds really good and inviting when today is just like yesterday and tomorrow is probably going to be like today. Because we know what's coming, right? But in unprecedented times, in uncertain times, the temptation to escape to the past or the future is much stronger. And with that, we risk missing out on the new thing that God is doing today. Forget the former things, God says. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. You see, God responds to the present moment. The fact that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever doesn't mean that he does The same thing yesterday, today, and forever. He is active, present, seizing every opportunity to reveal himself to us and to the world in a new way. God is doing a new thing. Because there is more of himself. There is more of God and his kingdom that he wants to reveal to us. And unprecedented times allow him a new opportunity To pull back the curtain a little further. Which, you know, got to warn you, is always a terrifying experience. I mean, you look through the story of the Bible and it's true. Every single time, whether it's Job uh, encountering God after the unprecedented tragedy of losing his family. Or the Israelites encountering God after the unprecedented experience of walking through the Red Sea. It's Isaiah encountering God's holiness in his vision. Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego encountering God in the fiery furnace. It's the disciples watching Jesus calm the storm or walk on water or in the transfiguration or experiencing walking through walls after the resurrection. Every single time. It's terrifying. Which is really one of the reasons why we like the God of the past so much better. I mean, the God of the past is, I mean, he's very true. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God wants us to rely on him based on his past track record. I'm not saying that we shouldn't remember and meditate on the past acts and words and faithfulness of God's. We should. 
They prepare us to encounter God today. We just have to take care that we are not keeping God in the past so that we can control him and, you know, figure him out. That we're not keeping Jesus, you know, just the way we like him. You know, little eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus, don't even know a word yet, you know, but still omnipotent kind of Jesus. When we do that, we miss out on who God is. It's a weird thing. It's a, it's a weird thing moving back to a place after being gone for 10 years. Because, you know, on the one hand, we know, we know Folsom. We know everything. We, we know where everything is. You know, you recognize places and people and things and sort of familiar. But also, everything has changed. Like, you can't turn left into the church anymore. What the heck? Who did that? <laughs> I mean, it's sort of familiar. But we lived in San Gabriel for 10 years. It's been 10 years. So while I know a lot of you here, the you that I know is the you of 10 years ago. And if all I do is operate on that knowledge, on the person that I knew 10 years ago, I'll miss out on the person that you've become, the person you are today. Our relationship isn't going to get very far because I'll be trying to reconnect with the person that you were 10 years ago, which, by the way, that person doesn't exist anymore. And I won't, I'll miss out on the person you are today. We do that to God when we keep Him in the past. But when we stay engaged and open, even in the uncertainty of unprecedented times, we allow Him to reveal more of Himself to us than we have previously known. And as terrifying as that might be, we also get to see the new thing that God is doing. And not only that, we get to join with him in it. Which, by the way, is not always an exact science. I love the, the story in Acts chapter 1. Disciples were facing the unprecedented situation of Jesus no longer being physically present with them. And oh, by the way, one of their number, one of the twelve, had just killed themselves out of guilt for betraying Jesus, and so their leader is gone. They're a man down. They don't know what to do. So they figured they decide they they address the personnel problem first. Got to pick somebody to fill Judas's place. You know how they did it? They cast lots. They rolled a die, basically. Now, is that the best method for discernment? I don't know. I mean, one thing I do know is that you never hear of them doing it again. And of all the books I've read on Christian discernment, not a single one of them promotes the very biblical practice of casting lots when you're making a decision. You know what they were doing? They were experimenting. 
They tried something. They were facing unprecedented circumstances. They needed to address them. And in the freedom that they had in the kingdom of God as disciples of Jesus, they tried something. Unprecedented times where God is doing a new thing. It's a time to try some things, to experiment, to play in the kingdom. If God is doing a new thing, well, maybe then we should try a few new things too. The funny thing is that in experimenting in the kingdom, success is actually not the point. I mean, like, we have no idea if the disciples got it right when they chose Matthias to be Judas's replacement. Like, you never hear from the guy again. And that's the way it is with a lot of our experiments in the kingdom. It was 26 years ago this month that I began my professional ministry. It was right over there, the B building. In the past 26 years, I've planned things, tried things, strategized things, created programs, deployed leaders, prepared curriculums, preached sermons. And do you know how many of those things worked? No, like seriously, do you know? Uh, does anybody know? Because I have no clue. I mean, from one standpoint, they were all a colossal failure. Because every single one of them was designed to change the world. And, well. But on the other hand, over 26 years, I know that people were touched, people were changed. I know that I have been changed by the encounters with God that I had over the course of all of those experiments. I know that I've been changed by the people that I was in those experiments with. Which is, by the way, the other thing you see the disciples do as they are following God, playing in the kingdom in unprecedented times. They stuck together. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples to stay together, which they did. 120 of them for 50 days stayed together. The upper room probably smelled really, really bad by then. But when the unprecedented wind of the Holy Spirit blew through that place on the day of Pentecost, they were together. They stayed together. When God's new thing of moving among the Gentiles rocked their worldview, they came together. They stayed together. Sometimes you get the impression that the Apostle Paul was out on his own, you know, braving new trails for the kingdom. He wasn't. Everywhere he went, he had a band of guys that followed around with him. And whenever he found himself isolated... Whenever he wasn't together with others, you read about it in his letters in the New Testament. He's complaining. He's lonely. He's longing to be together with other followers of Jesus. The past 18 months have been some of the most relationally challenging times of my life. Like, the rate of conflicts per minute that I've experienced is like through the roof. I've had conflict with people that are close, close friends 
brothers and sisters in Christ, conflict in my church, conflict in the community, conflict with people that I don't even know, but they just irritate me because of the position that they hold on whatever issue they hold. I had conflict with my kids. Not with Carolyn. Our marriage is perfect. (laughs) Down at our church in Southern California, we had people leave the church because we were too conservative or others left because we were too liberal. Some don't come because we required them to wear a mask. Others don't come because we weren't strict enough in requiring everybody to always wear a mask. There are people at my church, like like seriously, leader-level people, that have been coming together to church for years that have not spoken to each other since the events of last year, the Black Lives Matter protests, the election. Which is why it's so good to be back here at Oak Hills because I knew nothing like that happened around here. (laughs) This past Sunday, though, um, my church came together uh, because they were throwing a going-away dinner for us. There was 140 people there. This is the largest crowd that we'd had together since the beginning of COVID. And, you know, I looked around at the tables that were scattered throughout the patio, scattered throughout the parking lot. And for the first time in 18 months, I didn't see conflict. I didn't see division. I saw the church together sitting around the table, sharing a meal. And I couldn't help but wonder if all the problems and conflicts and fears and divisions that seem so unsurmountable, so irreconcilable, so unprecedented over the last year and a half, if, if any of them would have felt that way, if we had just been able to do this, come together around the table and share a meal, I know the pain is real. I know the frustration is real. I know the anger is real. I don't mean to minimize the issues that we are struggling with as if they don't matter. But here's the thing. We just have to repent. We have to repent and reconcile. Jesus went to the cross to tear down the dividing walls of hostility between us. So no matter how big of an issue you think it is. Jesus died for that issue. So it's done. After that dinner was over, my family and I jumped in the U-Haul. We drove ourselves and all of our worldly possessions back to Folsom. Because in an unprecedented way, turns out, we get to rejoin the team here at Oak Hills this fall. Now, what exactly I'll be doing, you might ask, and really, honestly, I, I don't know yet. But that's okay. Because whatever it is, we'll do it together. We'll run some experiments, make some mistakes, you know, roll the dice a couple of times. And if we keep our eyes open, I'm confident. We'll encounter God in an unprecedented way. Would you bow your heads with me? So God, we 
just recognize that we have allowed the uncertainty of our days to distract our eyes from you. And we have allowed fear to creep in and overrun our confidence in your faithfulness. And so, God, we just come to you and we repent. We, we're sorry for allowing ourselves to be distracted and we recommit ourselves to being open to your move and to what you are calling us to. God, I pray where there is conflict that you would bring peace, where there is fear that you would bring uh, confidence and safety. God, where there is brokenness, God, I pray that you would bring healing to us, to our families, to this church, to our world. And use us as your agents, God. We, uh, we make ourselves available for that work. In Jesus' name, amen.